This is a special announcement for our listeners in New York and Philadelphia. For the first time since our legendary Goth Socialist Variety Hour, the Antifada will be performing live with Midian Death Cult and Pod Damn America. First on Sunday, September 10th, we'll give you a night you'll almost never forget. Steps from the Gowanus Canal at Littlefield in Brooklyn, USA. Then on Super Tuesday, September 12th, we will be at the Franklin Ballroom in Philadelphia, PA with Well, There's Your Problem! And tickets are available now for both events, September 10th in Brooklyn, September 12th in Philly. You can find those links in the show notes. Will these historic shows usher in the first congresses of a grand podcast international? Or will we just be doing some goofy PowerPoints? We haven't really talked about it yet, but I hope to see you there. Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, uh, here with Varn of Varn Vlog. It's really redundant when I have to say my podcast, and it's literally my last name, like, yeah. um, and Sean of Antifada, who is not so arrogant as to name his podcast after himself. Um, no, maybe in retrospect, uh, the jokey name, the Antifada, that we'd had at the time before uh, Charlottesville and all that. Um, maybe it wore a little thin after a while, but I'm not at the point, nor will I ever be at the point where it's going to be Sean cast or Sean vlog or anything like that. And I'll yeah. leave that to the real experts like Derek. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know why you, you, as completely as a state of the left, the, the reason why I named it Varm vlog was so that I could pivot what I talked about at any time in case I decided it all went tits up and I wanted <laughs> to talk about just history. Oh, uh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, as we're here today talking about uh, the state of the U.S. left, I've thought about because I have such a nice time um, with my wife, Rax, talking about like history and culture and like mm-hmm. television shows and movies and stuff like that. I don't think the Antifada with his name could ever become a more like general historical thing, but maybe it could be if everyone out there continues to disappoint us so much. Andy and I, maybe we'll shoot in that direction, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I, but with my show, it, it is an excuse for every now and then, like, I'm going to cover the works of Michael Shea, or I'm going to do a, a a podcast that's coming up in the week on the class relations as as illustrated in, in Anglo-Saxon poetry. Why? Oh, hell yeah. I don't fucking care what you <laughs> like. like <laughs> no, it's like it's like an old school, like, talk show general interest sort of thing right. that I, I think is, a, is pretty fun and awesome. I just finished uh, reading, or I'm about to finish, I should say, on the recommendation of my lovely wife, uh, the third book of the Hillary Mantel series on Thomas Cromwell which mm. is a uh, fascinating historical fiction. So she and I are going to talk about that soon. So if you get really listeners out there, if you get really annoyed at Derek and I and our cynicism and our pessimism and our criticism, just know at the other side of the rainbow, there is and could be, and probably will be a discussion about Henry the eighth and his many wives coming down the pipe. And Andy's always working on fun stuff too. Yeah. I, I would actually say Hilary Martel's book. There, there's actually lots from Marxists to learn in those fucking books, believe it or not. It um, is a story about a man before his time he is like essentially a bourgeois administrator he comes from the merchant class and he runs into it's like downton abbey or something like that he runs Mm -hmm. into the incorrigible violent opposition of uh you know it's not yet a declining nobility but one who's like moray's sense of honor sense of uh organic society is beginning to decay it's early 16th century so it's still in its very early phases but a very very fascinating portrait of one author imagining uh, what it would be like to inhabit the subjectivity of a person who became a villain of some sort in uh, in British history among many, many people. So fascinating stuff. Rightly and wrongly so, I think, the, yeah. when you talk about Cromwell, uh, both Cromwells, honestly. Both but Cromwells, it, yeah. To me, it is it is also telling because if if you want to look for why I am one of these people who thinks the first capitalist nation state, we're not going to get into where, where capitalism was born, but mm. capitalist nation state is England understanding the transition, the Protestant Reformation, the consolidation of a nation state as opposed mm. to a multi-ethnic uh, sovereign kingship. Mm. Um really is the outcome of this sort of botch 
proto proto bourgeois reformation and yeah. and uh, i think understanding that period is really important um and to plug something that i do if you like talking about old shit i talk with the regrettable centuries about a uh, greater century people about class relations and, and feudal and late antique society and ways of understanding how capitalism developed uh as a sideshow all the time so those that's uh, a great podcast and you guys do great work together yeah, Herr Post Trotsky, it says some of the best commentators out there are. Don't think that we're going to get through the hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, whatever it is of this particular episode without talking about the decline of organized Trotskyism. Oh, God, we're going to yeah. do that alongside the decline of everything else, too. So we're not singling out Trotskyists by any means. In fact, I you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for the Trotskyist critique because it was one that was sort of like the default critique like I am a socialist or I am a Marxist of some sort in the 1990s and 2000s trying to reconcile what happened in the 20th century uh, with, um, you know, some semblance of a, of a revolutionary theory or a living theory, let's yeah. say. It wasn't all just OSS and CIA anti-communism that led to that either, my friends. But yeah, um, uh, I think we have to look at the general state of the left by looking at the general state of the United States right now and this might be a large portion of today's discussion before we get into the nitty-gritty of subgroups but as always this is diving into the wreckage 9.1 but may become 9.234 and 5 we love to start a little mini series so yeah i agree yeah. we'll start this one off trying to do i think like a more expanded version of what we did with a very popular episode which was the specters of bernie one where we kind of mm -hmm. took a temperature check on where, um, you know, especially the millennial left or the DSA left uh, was after uh, the failure of Bernie in uh, the second time in 2020. So I think it's a good time considering that the left broadly conceived is as much at sea now as it was a year and a half, two years ago to dip back into this. And I think especially talk about the relationship of the left vis-a-vis -vis, uh, liberal forces in this country and especially uh, the Democratic Party. Something we often talk about, but maybe deserves like a, a more sustained treatment. Yeah, I think I think that there are two things in my mind that led me to kind of as kind of a series of guideposts that came up and then and then a couple of events. One um was the Brenner Riley thesis and the response to it now two years out. And they're still talking about it over that new left review. Mm -hmm. And while I think that a lot of the Brenner Riley thesis was, was the, the, the most advanced forms of cope. Um, uh, I also think there are insights in it. On the other hand, I was thinking about kind of two polemical texts that came out recently. One is um, cosmonauts, uh, Cosmonaut Magazine and Marxist Unity Group's internal documents about how they think we should be relating to the bourgeois revolution and the Constitution, which I think they take a, an interesting, almost dialectical approach to, to American history, where they say mm -hmm. we should validate bourgeois republicanism as a means to get to socialist republicanism, but we should reject the Constitution as a counter-revolution, which it always was. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. I think tactically, however, that's a harder sell than they seem to think. But but one of the things that led to when you when you look at that um, is the clarification of where the DSA really stands. And the mm. one thing we can say is we can no longer really say that the Democratic Socialists of America are the same thing as the Jacobin left, mm. Jacobin magazine left anymore. Like, yes, there's, I still think that that's probably the slim majority of people in the DSA, but the left did better than the right in the DSA caucuses. And that's, that surprised me because even from the votes on, uh, on DSA orientation and what they should do, that was not obvious. Yeah. That that's where things were going to go. And it clarified something to me about general society. And lastly, the other polemic is is the collection by frenemy of of me, uh, friend of the show, uh, Doug Lane's Sublation Magazine, and 
my former Marxist track, uh, track coach, Chris Catrone, um, <laughs> a book on the death of the millennial left, a book that I found. Well, what, I find it interesting because I've read all of it before being a former Platypus member and following what they did, but also yeah. that I found both enlightening and super frustrating simultaneously and enlightening because in its critique components of where the left was exhausting itself and where it washed up on the shores of the Biden uh, of the Biden election, it seems absolutely correct mm. on its predictions of why and how that was happening. If you read the finer print, it doesn't actually have seemed to be that correct. So I sat mm. down with these three things in mind and then I went, let's look at where general U.S. society is right now, because the one thing I can tell you, the right is further right than it's ever been, including during Trump. Yeah, you were um, sending me some polls that reflect that. Um, the progressive movement has declined in popularity. Social conservatism has increased in popularity. But with the context, and this is an important context, Sean, yeah. that we see this every time there's a Democratic president um, that in the second... Uh, that in the second half of the first term there is an uptick in dissatisfaction and, and social conservatism it's so, a seesaw effect of negative partisanship essentially right in that um it the, you know when, when people ask well when's the last time you know it's been 10 years since there's been a, a big conservative backlash i'm like yeah but do you know when it was it was 2011 mm -hmm. you know it was in the second half of the first term of the obama administration right so and the last time there was such an uptick before that was 2005, I mean, 1995. Yeah. Mm. Now, there was also an uptick. The, the one outlier is the uptick after 9-11. But that's that's both obvious and obvious why it's an outlier. Like, yeah, right. There was a, um, a full state, full court press into uh, the Iraq war and 9-11 and the war on terror uh, sucking all the air out of the room of politics at that point and the kind of patriotic after effects of 9-11 lasting for uh for years uh yeah. before of course the the great big election of uh 2006 and but it's, it's incredible to see how fast that social conservative bubble in 2004 2005 i mean 2003 2004 actually collapsed and that's something Ooh. i think it collapsed so fast and so thoroughly by the end of the Bush administration that we actually, I think, have a hard time even remembering how thoroughgoing it was. Mm. Um, there was a lot of discussion with the election of Obama that you had a fundamental political uh, realignment that the Republican Party, such as it was constituted, uh, was going to be out of power for an entire generation. Right. And I remember this happening. And then, of course, <clears throat> this within the great financial crisis. And then within months, you had uh, the backlash to that uh, and the backlash to Obama and the TARP program, which was, of course, the Tea Party, which, mm. as we know now, uh, years down the line, what, 14 years down the line, uh, was the early shock of like a new right populism that begins, I wouldn't even say begins in the United States, but as part of like a larger process that we've been seeing unfolding, which of course Trump is a huge culmination. of. Well, there's two things that I think is interesting and in this, these are things that people do not like to see contrast. So of course I'm tempted to start with this contrast, but it's the contrast occupying the tea party. Mm -hmm. On one hand, the tea party, by the time we knew it was largely astroturfed. That's absolutely true. That is not true in its origins, actually. Its founders yeah. distanced themselves from it e even before Obama became president. Um, it largely, and it in some ways actually reflects the general later shift of conservatism in general from a libertarian stance that was a response often to the Bush administration and to Clintonism mm. into various forms of rightism that we have now, you saw that movement in the Tea Party itself. And in the Tea Party itself, it moved from very rapidly, I might add, mm. from a kind of organic libertarian tax protest, largely against taxation for the Iraq war in 2007, mm. into an astroturfed um, movement that was a populist conservative movement that had kind of a clown show version of the 90s and late 80s moral majority movement. Mm. So it was still speaking the language of evangelical religion, um, 
distancing itself from racial nationalism, uh, only talking about white stuff in coded ways, mostly to critique the president, mm. into it being explicit on nationalist politics. And in a way that was, if not white nationalist, sympathetic to it. And then once it, by that point, it's no longer the Tea Party anymore. It becomes associated with Trumpism and Trumpist like movements. But you also see within that, at the time that liberals start fighting it as primarily a white nationalist movement, it actually starts developing a civic and cultural nationalist narrative to be more inclusive because it knows mm. the leaders know they cannot survive off of just white disaffectation alone. And they know it, which was a conversation that was also happening within the Republican party when Romney loses, right? There was this mm -hmm. great policy position piece that comes out from a Republican think tank. I forget what the name of it was, but it basically argued for uh, a more inclusive Republican party important to the same sort of demographic crisis that liberals were crowing about uh crisis i suppose if you're you know a white supremacist the same democratic uh the same demographic tendencies that liberals were saying we're going to create this multiracial uh middle class majority for democrats the republican elites were looking at and saying that we needed to broaden the basis of our party uh in terms of race and demographics and ethnicity and immigrant and native and that can that comes full circle, but under a different rubric of not the same moral majority slash libertarian uh, coalition and national security coalition that had pertained from the 80s onwards, but instead under this new sort of Trumpist MAGA guise, which is economically nationalist, which is, as you say, has elements of civic nationalism, but of course, as we know, too, white nationalism as well, which is kind of these two um, currents running through the movement. I think one of the things that became pretty clear very early on is, and it was clarified by Charlottesville itself, um, is that white nationalism would have an opposition narrative pretty thoroughly, both within the conservative movement and outside of it, even if it wasn't coming from Trump. Mm. Um, and that focusing your your ire and energy against marginal Nazis who were very real and very dangerous in a lot of ways, but were a very small sliver of society ultimately, was a way to distract yourself from the larger problems of society in general that mm -hmm. were leading to some of the stuff in Trump world. And one of the things that equating, say, Trump's barter policy to white nationalism did was give you an out when the white nationalists seemed to lose an election to not really looking at the larger systemic functions that were driving that border policy. Yeah. And that has actually accelerated some quote minority groups unquote move to the right. And we've seen it and it's documented and Democrats themselves admit it, which is why they're no longer making the argument that they will win just by demographic bleed over. All right. And that's that's one thing. But I was going to contrast that to what because what we actually saw with the Tea Party was not the birth was a birth of a new movement. But what it really was was the death of two prior movements. Mm. Movement conservatism, as defined as an alliance between libertarian bourgeois interests and evangelical interests, and thus an alliance between a pretty broad class factor with, mm. with support in places like the Northeast ended. It mm. ended. Um, this was always kind of papered over by a weird class coalition maintained through evangelical Christianity that did give the, I mean, we, we sometimes forget, but one of the crises of Marxism in the eighties, in addition to the stagnation of the Soviet union was trying to figure out why voters no longer voted for Democrats, much less progressive or socialist candidates mm. and why they no longer really. And organically, this is true. And this is something that people don't want to look at. But one of the reasons why Atari Democrats and third way Democrats came into being was that unions were legitimately unpopular amongst workers and they were legitimately unpopular amongst workers. And this is what a lot of the current left does not want to look at before the propaganda took advantage. Mm. Mm hmm. The unpopularity starts in the 70s. The anti-union propaganda really kicks up in the 80s. It is actually taking advantage and systemically seizing on what is an organic movement, not causing it. And this is a problem with the left in general. 
Uh, I think part of it's we, we're academics uh, so much of the time. And so we tend to take textual things as origins as opposed mm. to actually post facto reflections. But also, like, it's clear now that the death of unions after Fordism was bad. Right. Yeah. It's clear to everybody that, sure. you know, even even fucking conservatives will sometimes say that now. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, like, it's 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 clear. But at the time when union leadership started getting paid and stuff like stock d dividends in in the companies they were managing, it did not seem clear that they were anything other than rent seekers to parts of the working class. And I think not looking at that honestly, which which was something that you know, a lot of burnout from uh, from the new left led to this Atari Democrats. Well, one of the things what they were doing is they were trying to look at that. Go back and read Bill Bradley. Even Michael Brooks talks about like he yeah. read Bill Bradley and Bill Bradley was like dead on on the problems of union leadership and its disconnection from the wank and file in the 70s leading to the crisis of the 80s and the in the the kind of third way. um yeah. Yeah. That politics arises, as you say, not as some sort of trick to convince workers again that, that big labor is bad, but very, it's not even just that by the 1970s, there was like a psychological crisis, you know, that mm -hmm. we're, we're feeling some sort of malaise that we can go back and document in some sociological fashion. Of course, somebody like Jefferson Cowie in Staying Alive does document that malaise through popular culture. Uh, and through um, first-person stories of workers uh, in the late 60s and into the 1970s. You could see it in the actions, the great strike waves of the 70s, and there's always the comparison between, say, Striketober, which we've been in for like a year or so now, uh, and and the, the, the hours and uh, days lost to strike action today versus in the 1970s. Many of those strikes in the 1970s were wildcat strikes, which is to say that they were strikes that were uh, by the rank and file workers or by locals that were against the wishes uh, of union leadership. And that's because the unions in the 1970s uh, failed to adequately fight for or even pose a solution to uh, a terrain of political economy that was radically shifted from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, uh, the heyday of big unions in the United States, which was deindustrialization, which was the breakdown of cost of living with high inflation, which was in a more broader and political and even like leftist sense, uh, a distrust uh, and uh, a rebellion against uh, big labor, just as there is one against big capital, just as one as there was against big government. And the left forces of the 1970s are trying to fight a rear guard action, uh, trying to industrialize and go into the factories. But there was never a, a possibility in the midst of all the chaos and in the midst of massive worker discontent, not just with the jobs and the work process itself, but also with the way that unions were a real corporatist element in the imposition of things like speed up in places like Ohio and Lordstown in the factories. Uh, there was never, the left never grasped upon a solution that could have created working class institutions and organs, uh, whether that be trade unions or parties that were adequate to fighting on this new terrain. And so, as you said, yes, the Atari Democrats were dealing with not just the decline in union membership because of deindustrialization, but also like a real and manifest discontent of workers in the millions going on wildcat strike against the union and against the boss. Absolutely. And I think what, what happened and believe it or not, the, the, my triad of things that are useful to think about, I mentioned in the beginning, this brings back up Spencer Leonard more than Chris Catrone, mm. but Spencer Leonard pointed out to me in an interview when we were talking about Bonapartism and, and where the left was on a reflection about the difference between Marx in 1850 to 1860 to us today. Mm was that um, our left, and by that I mean our parents left, really, and that, like, even mine and your parents left, the, the boomer uh, silent generation left, hit a wall where it had been critiquing Fordism as a stagnant monopoly capitalism for 20 years. And then, as it as it seems to give up on its on its battles after the failure of the McGovern campaign uh, and moves into, you know, the cultural narcissism stuff that Christopher Lash writes about, it actually ends up having to defend Fordism against an emergent neoliberalism, which it couldn't even name 
because it wasn't nameable yet. Now, for those of us who think, well, why does that have to do with us today? To tie it back to why I'm contrasting the Tea Party with Occupy, and for a lot of your listeners, this is still ancient history. This is still over a decade ago now. But what Occupy signaled, and if you'd have listened to David Graeber at the time, was like the emergence of all these ultra-left and anarchist trends um, that were somewhat concessionary to liberalism um, that have been kind of spearheaded by the like radical pragmatism of people like Naomi Klein. And, and it was a consolidation of the various movementisms of like what we might call the Gen S selects, but it's of the left that existed between the collapse of the new left and the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Um, that led to a dominance of, of a kind of, I would say, facile form of anarchism. And I, I don't say that as a critique of anarchism so much, actually, even as a critique of the kind of anarchism we got in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s right and one that was given towards like extremophile mor moral positions such as like anarcho-privativism are the first round of or what the second round of post-leftism you know post-left anarchism and hike and bay and uh it was just a wild unhinged movement that also derived a lot of its like understanding of politics abroad from actually like Maoist, Marxist, Leninist, and Maoist and MIM writings. And the thing to remember about, about the dominant forms of Maoism before now, all right, and this is important, uh, because Maoism today is not recognizable to Maoism just even 15 years ago. Maoism today, almost, almost to a group, is Dungist sympathetic, if not Dungist is sympathetic, the non-Dungashia sympathetic movement, such as people who like like Red Guards Austin, tend to degenerate into dangerous personality cults very mm -hmm. quickly. Um, and the critique of post-78 China from Maoist is dropped. But during the time period that we're talking about leading up to now, the dominant forms of Maoism... People will say it's just in the West and France and the United States are, uh, you know, are huge in this. The anti-revisionist movement emerging out of the new left is also a huge part of this. Mm. But it was dominant in Latin America in a very real way that led to like the FARC, the Shining Path, etc. Shining Path, yeah. Yeah. Which has uh, plenty of defenders these days. Uh, the Red Guards Austins are... Uh... Right. Are, are are of that Gonzaloist tendency, right. right? Right. So, so in the last fifteen years, what Maoism means and what Marxism Leninism means has shifted completely. Um, going back to that eighties um, and nineties stuff, I think it's important to note too that there is this sort of subcultural, sort of um, post-autonomist uh, anarchist. Mm -hmm um sort of um, Nagiri was an international bestseller you got it from like book of the week clubs for real 1998 did that come out yep when i was a senior in high school this is when i of the had first... yeah me too i had gotten my first apartment i remember and somebody brought that book over and said this is the new theory and uh it always seemed like claptrap to me but i i fell into a lot of that other shit too because everybody it was in the air right there didn't seem as though there was any um alternative but of course, what is the other sort of like remnant of um, that 60s politics that keeps on trucking along? It's the DSA and a DSA that's radically different from the DSA now uh, in that in places like New York City, they could get a uh, mayor elected. You know, right. you could have David Dinkins as the mayor in the late early and uh, in the late 80s and early 1990s. I know it's hard for people to understand, but this is something that uh, I have been studying actually partially in response to um, Chris Catron himself was looking at the DSA as a as a caucus apparatus. I had said, oh, well, there's a caucus apparatus for the DSA in New York, even though the local tendencies are confused and they won't form a regional block they still have a like a actual influence in the on the new york legislature what i discovered mm. uh is that they had more influence in the 80s mm -hmm. locally they had very little nationally but they had more influence locally and that they grew off this local influence to to what i like to 
and this number has never made sense to me, but there's like a sectarian limit of about 5,000 that groups, when there's not a move towards something larger, stop at. Mm-hmm. Or when groups collapse, that's what they collapse at. So, mm-hmm. for example, the, the CPUSA went from uh, in 52, uh, like in 48, which is its height, I think 60,000 members. Mm. And, uh, and, and it collapsed to by the, by the seventies, about 5,000, which is where it stayed roughly until very recently. Now I tell these stories to kind of tell you that people thought Trump is the beginning of something new. I've argued that actually Trump was a phenomenon that was happening in Europe and East Asia and, and, and whatnot uh, in, in uh, different sectors and in different kinds of societies from Duterte to Orban mm. to Modi mm-hmm. um, in response to the economic and, and environmental crises which were woven together in the aughts and the collapse of the war on terror. Mm. Um, this... It came to the U.S. late, and one of my first observations about Trump in 2015 uh, was that Trump actually was not a repudiation of European politics. It was actually America having a European-style right that it had not really had since probably before before, uh, the 1950s. Mm. Since the Eisenhower, like the, the Truman Eisenhower consensus was established. Mm. And and uh, the coalition and Reaganism, which was a repudiation of that, then that movement conservatism was still not European esque in its character. It was not largely led by petit bourgeois interest. It didn't have a, a blood and soil national project. It, in, in some ways, it didn't need to be. It didn't need to make any explicit appeals to white nationalism because in some ways, there was no need to make those appeals either. Like mm. we were in a state where right nationalist assumptions were de rigueur, not because people thought of themselves as white nationalists or racial nationalists. In fact, most of them probably thought of themselves as moderate anti-racist, mm. but that the um, the conception of who and what america was its self image was european post european and pale yeah. like i think that's right yeah what yeah and white nationalism actually ironically emerges when it becomes clear that that's not viable and so that you, that's in crisis right and that crisis begins in the 70s and spreads out slowly during our time period to get back to the left, because this is not like where is the right now, right? Yeah. No, but <laughs> well, they are the the major like um, uh, forward driving force in politics right now. As much as Biden's getting credit for Bidenomics, it seems as though the what new the fuck ideas is Bidenomics and... other than like neoliberals gaslighting me? <laughs> like... Well, Bidenomics is the true state of the left, right? And and I think that that's. That's something that we'll grapple with in the course of this and, and other episodes, right? But uh, anyways, um, go on. You were saying. No, I, I just think that what we saw, and I'm going to use another paradigmatic figure, Navarra Media. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we begin to see, for reasons that are unclear to me, I've done a whole video of this with British people and with American Trotskyists and post-Trotskyists on how this happened. The British... Trotskyist movement, which was not actually that influential in Britain outside of a small faction of the Labour Party ever, all right? especially in Liverpool, <laughs> right? Uh, became became revived American Trotskyism, right? Um, which also meant we had stronger ties to the British left. The British left media largely represented our Marxist media almost entirety, down mm. to David Harvey being the person doing the fucking lectures, mm. like, um, but. If you think back to the world of 2007, 2008, the ISO is the most dominant tendency. The Cliffites have been able to really been the Cliffites and the WWP Marciites. And the ISO was the sister organization of the Socialist Workers Party. Right. right? In in Great Britain. In Great Britain, the the Cliffite formation. And the ISO, the ISO has a complicated history where it starts off as Shackmanite, then Draperite, as the independent socialist, then parts of it split off and form the international socialist. 
uh, because they had began a dialogue with Cliff in the 70s. None of that really matters. That's a super minority tendency, even within Trotskyism until the late 80s. When it happens in the 80s is American Trotskyism more or less dies mm. the first time. Um, and British Trotskyism revives it in the alter globalization movement as the alternative, the more organized alternative with a richer theoretic literature in the alter globalization movement against anarchist. Mm. What becomes clear in hindsight, but only in hindsight, is the alter globalization anarchism of people like Younger Chomsky and David Graeber. And the British inflected kind of I would say reformist ophelic. Um, reformist ophelic? What do yeah, you mean? so they were more willing to work with reformist parties and the Democrats and to even like make radical pivots on like how they thought Trotskyists should talk about class and race politics and stuff. Like the mm. ISO was all over the place. Mm. Um, the, but they were more willing to make concessions to Democrats in a lot of ways than most of the other historical sectarian groups. The Marxist-Leninist groups were pretty much all dead. The CPUSA was on life support. Mm -hmm. um, the RCP was on life support. They were splintering off groups who were criticizing the RCP, for example, for like maintaining its stance on homosexuals well into the late 1990s that even yeah. like Castro had given up in the early 1990s and, the, and like this, the uh, PRC had given up as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there was this like this idea that like oh these stalinists are like anti-queer and all this and so we're going to move away from them they were also blamed for destroying the the s the first sds mm -hmm. um and while they were crushed by COINTELPRO, the only good ones were the panthers which was kind of the way it was seen and the panthers were long gone by this point mm -hmm. So that left, uh, and this is the milieu, and I actually came to the left end, and so it's hard. Sometimes I have to remind myself this was where we were at. Yeah, yeah. What Occupy represented, and I realized it not initially, but I did realize it before it was over, was the death of those forms of politics. Mm. That in, in coming to the moment of a crisis of a democratic president unable to deliver the reforms he seemed to have promised, which led to a, a slow growth recovery, which did not benefit most people. The only thing that the democratic mayors of the cities where Occupy really took off could do, including people like Gene Kwan, who had been Maoist in the 70s. Yeah, right. In Oakland? Was that? Right. Yeah. yeah. Was police repression which then made the movement incredibly popular. Like it came up as a worldwide sprouting off everywhere in solidarity with actions in Greece. But it, I was not even in the United States when this happened. I was in Korea and there was Occupy Yoido and then there was Occupy Taipei. And then there was, you know, yeah. this was, this was, this was endemic to most of the planet's left-wing movement at this time and it was also seen as in line with the development of Soriza and Podemos and these left-wing yeah. popular groups in Europe what became increasingly clear to me and part of how we got here is actually encapsulated by the movement of Navarra Media this is why I want to talk about the British yeah, Navarra Media started off as an autonomous media project and over time, it, it, it started morphing from Hart and Aguirre and Italian left communism and Italian autonomism, which it, it took both terrains seriously, increasingly into Corbynism, mm -hmm. explicitly and shockingly so, because it was not it made no sense from their prior theoretical perspective that that like, why are you guys moving from talking about um Hart and Aguirre and these kind of critiques of the Florida state and, and radical autonomism and In, into becoming basically the, the media organ for momentum, which was the right. sort of millennia millennial um, Corbin uh, political apparatus or caucus within labor, right? Within right. British labor. So, so I was working for North Star when it was happening and I started seeing this happening. And I that was part way back when that stupid vampire castle article. And I want to get lost into that today. 
Yeah, but part it seems of what, like a million years ago. <laughs> well, it me too. I mean, it is literally a decade ago now. Yeah. Um, when I when I and uh, the late Paul Shetler and and uh, Matthias Cruel and uh, some other people published that series, part of what we were doing was actually trying to put someone like Fisher, who wasn't really part of that Navarra term, but I thought represented this move from like this radical theory to using radical theory, but to support social democracy in a kind of milquetoast and incoherent form mm. in the, in the personage of the arguments he made about Russell Morand. Yeah. And like a culturalist workerist right. sort of vein, right? Yeah. Culturalist workerism. And like him admitting that like Fisher admitting like three years later before he died, that he'd even given up on Marxist productive theories of class that he had a more like British Baduian theory of classes where you're from. That's why he could talk about, um, a Russell Brand as working class, even though he clearly hadn't been any meaningful meaning of working class for several, you know, yeah. probably a decade at the point that they were talking about. And I and I remember saying, like, well, this is what Occupy is morphing into a culturalist workerism that is a critique of autonomism and is a critique of anarchism. Yeah. But while it talks Marxist language doesn't actually understand the categories it's using mm -hmm. while they read Mike McNair's revolutionary strategy. They actually do the one thing McNair tells you not to do, which is decide with the, with the right wing of a socialist movement or the left wing mm -hmm. of a bourgeois movement in a way that makes you responsible for their actions. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. That is clearly happening from Bosch Carson Cara's group from about 2009 and his anarcho-liberalism critique of his later comrades that wrote for him at Jacobin when he starts hanging out with Naomi Klein and co. And that, that is very clear to me what the movement is. What I began worrying about at that time is that what we were doing wasn't what we thought we were doing. Mm. So we were channeling the rage of a lot of people into an electoral campaign that was very similar to Naderism, but instead of being outside of the party, was in a quasi position both inside and outside of it simultaneously in the figure of Bernie Sanders, hmm. a figure of the old silent generation, new left, one that had been way more relevant actually in the 80s and hmm. had been himself a kind of flashpoint for what led to the problems that led to the Generation X left. Now, people go, well, generations aren't real. Why are you relying on them so much? Here, I'm just using them as time periodization pieces. This is a way for you to conceive of how the movement of these groups are going. Their actual, like, whether or not this has to do with demographic shifts is not relevant here. Mm -hmm. um, but it is very clear that, like, go back and look at like Murray Bookchin's critique of Sanders. It's, yeah, it's actually they, just as precedent actually is like Adolf Reed's critique of Obama in, in, yeah. in the nineties. Like, He's writing in what the early eighties, is it? They're both living in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and he calls out his, um, what is not just his reform is reformism, but his, um, his, his dipping his toe into class collaborationism and developmentalism and things of that sort. That's what's the crux of, of uh, his. I haven't read it in years. Yeah, the, the crux is basically that like he's going to sell you out eventually. Yeah. I mean, and and my my understanding about the less relationship of power became very clear to me in 2018 to 2000 and to now. And what I'm going to now interject myself into this narrative, I've been talking about my relationships to all this, but I'm also was abroad until 2017. I was out of the country from 2009 to 2017. So, so there's, there's something that, um, that you touched on that I think is really important because you talked about Occupy as sort of a bookend of a whole mm -hmm. period, right? Mm -hmm. What seemed like a culmination, but was really like the sort of the end of a period of politics from, let's say, like the late 70s with the rise of like anarcho-punk sort of subculturalism and squatter movements all the way up into through the 90s a formative period for both you and me and probably some of the listeners certainly by the 2000s most of the listeners will be aware of this sort of politics um it's it's like this continuation of uh manifestationism i think i could call it uh you could call it like 
the idea of uh, of summit hopping, right? The idea of um, uh, symbolically rejecting the idea of um, forming on mass in order to put forward a uh, political creed de corps against the great institutions that exist, and any of the political, um, the any of the pl uh, positive political or any of the outreach is going to happen. Um, through the after the reaction of the police repression to break up these particular manifestations, these particular protests, Occupy Wall Street, as you said, becomes very big because there is this massive state response to try to shut it down, gathering sort of public support, but all the way through into like BLM. And you saw this with the Arab Spring protests as well, all through there is diminishing returns on that right like this idea that you can create a resistance that you can occupy a space that the reaction of the state violently is going to grow your numbers and somehow organically begin to create a sort of like tycoon-esque horizontalism that's going to connect more and more people together and eventually despite demanding nothing you're going to actually form some sort of political project out of that that still exists up until today like what was rose city antifa doing you know, up until probably like six months or a year ago, maybe even still to this day, popular street manifestations, popular street demonstrations against the fascist threat, but also with the knowledge that the sort of spectacular response of the state was going to give legitimacy to the manifestation itself, right? That what we are doing is politics because the state is repressing us. That is something that it felt like was dying out with the rise of the Bernie movement, but then the resistance to Donald Trump, right? The pussy hats and the, and the great um, protests. And then certainly by BLM, you see that this sort of idea of like state repression equaling political legitimacy remains. And I think it still remains to an extent today, despite all the various different ways over the last 20 or 30 years that it's been proven not only to not form a larger movement of movements um, you know, that can actually put forward an organizational form or a positive political program, but it's actually become a self-justification for the same type of inactivity and inaction, uh, failure to build institutions and parties uh, that we've seen forever. Yeah, I think you're, I think that's, that's right. So what, what happens then is, is interesting. Um, and this leads us to the left as we are now. And this will take us a while to get into where I think we are right now in the specific form of what I think the left did, how it's not, how it both is and has not come to terms with what it did. Yeah. Um, so one thing that we talk about, when we talk about like the dirtbag left and all these terms are already, it's so funny. Like these I got called the dirtbag left like a week ago and it was so, it was, it felt so dated because it's such a 2016 thing, but this was a Elizabeth Warren wonk sort of yeah. guy. So they're still, just as we are still, all of us relitigating 2016, so too are they because yep. it was the last time they faced a real and concerted threat. Uh, that wasn't a manageable threat like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, one that could be wrapped back up into this sort of partisan uh, back and forth that's normal everyday politics, but a real threat that their political party would ultimately be taken over by people who they didn't think they could control. That That is what's interesting to me about the Elizabeth Warrenites, because we have to go back again when we talk about them. And I... I, in some ways, I feel like a recent historian because the left's memory has been both long and very short simultaneously. Like We spend a lot more time talking about Kronstadt than we do talking about uh, left politics in the United States in the 1980s or 1990s. Or even in the 2000s. Or even in the 2000s. Elizabeth Warren seemed in the in the day of the of the op of the first round of resistance the oppositional john stewart resistance to neoconservatism um the warrenites sounded unbelievably radical that's the thing it was and like somebody's doing what david kucinich tried to do and it's actually landing <laughs> mm -hmm. that's a throwback for people who remember the 2004 yeah 2004 yeah. uh uh and, and this is the milieu I came out of, but this time period, I, I react so strongly to the left as a kind of, not, as like a cultural subculture group that I just like write it off. That's long history. We've talked about that many times. I'm going to skip yeah. that. Um, but Warren in 2006 
kind of speaks to me even, um, but I don't entirely trust her. And I think it's really interesting when you see how these movements have happened in 20 years. Mm. Um, because someone like the guy you're arguing with, Will Stansel, sounds yeah. like a neoconservative shell. Mm. He's a Warrenite, but he sounds mm-hmm. like a neoconservative shell. It's just like, well, all the problems you think in the economy are false. The, the popular perception is just wrong. Like, we're growing the economy and things are getting ever better. And that tells you something about the position that these people have moved to themselves in yeah. regards to the status quo. Because, it's a defensist and conservative position. Right. The, 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 the vital center, which has managed to fight off all comers, at least in the United States, um, over the last 20 years or so, certainly over the last 15, has been actually very effective in fighting a rear guard battle and pulling in different coalitional forces, especially never Trump Republicans, large sections of big business and tech. I mean, they had those before, but they've been very successful in conserving, of course, what was the consensus of the 1990s and pushing forward, I think, something that landed flat on its face with the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, which is America's already great. You know, that's essentially what he was saying. And he's arguing against not me or not you or not the various people throwing graphs at him. But this Warren guy is arguing against the 60 percent of Americans, 70 percent of Americans, whatever it is, who think America is going in the wrong direction right now. But there's a weird materialism that these people have, too. It's like a neoliberal materialism where for them, the facts, the graphs, the statistics speak for themselves in a way that the actual like subjective feelings of working class people who are feeling uh, very unstable right now, feeling like things are very much in flux, don't actually like the way that their lives are going, the way that prices are going, the way that their jobs are going. Those people are wrong. You have to look at the actual statistics. It becomes a question of a, a media narrative as opposed to some something fundamentally broken in the way that not just the economy works, but in the way that people interpret what the economy is and why it should be working. Right. So you can people like that, the Warren people can argue with me or you or anybody else all day. Right. But we're not the ones who think that things are heading in the wrong direction. It says something about, like you said, their their conservative instincts on this sort of stuff. There's Steven Pinkerite um, sort of Candide esque um, conceptions of what an economy is, what the economy is doing right now. That uh, is, I think, eye-opening for all of us, right? Because when you attach yourself to that political formation, when you consider the Warrenites to be on like the right wing of what the left does, you are tying yourself to not just a failing um, or a discredited political party and a largely discredited political project, but also a largely discredited economy and a largely discredited uh bourgeois state because you, you send all these um stats surveys you know from like reputable polling places uh and it appears as though there's this sort of rightward turn on everything i think you're right that social conservatism and economic conservatism there is a negative partisan swing uh that goes back and forth or fundamentally it's something that we've talked about i think many times uh, in our conversations which is that as much as people want the federal government and the bourgeois state in the United States uh, to be the guarantor of their freedoms and their rights, their social rights and social wages. People simply don't believe that it's possible anymore. They really don't. That's not the avenue of social change that many, many people are are looking to go towards. And all the stancelites in the world aren't going to change that. One of the things that I think we're going to that we're going to talk about is I think there's all kinds of right wing deviationism of, of jumping up on all of the left right now, um, including from the ultra left, even that you're seeing all kinds of weird um, copes. Mm. But we need to go back to what Occupy and Navarra really meant, because we yeah, saw this please. here, too. We saw the shift, particularly when the when the frankly business interest of haymarket books caused the various sex scandals of the Trotskyist organizations to really come to the fore and finally be dealt with after a decade of stalling in some cases, um, collapsing the ISO, which had collapsed down from a probably about 6,000 member thing in the early aughts to about a thousand. Furthermore, Trotsky is the Trotskyist groups, almost all of them, but with the exception of the IMT, which is now having a different crisis, 
liquidated into the DSA. Yeah. Um, creating caucuses in the DSA that also combine tendencies of of Trotskyists who have been historically opposed, making that their their ideological critiques less and less relevant. Mm. While it is true that the collapse of the Soviet Union had meant that many of the divisions between these Trotskyist groups were no longer valid, and that while then none of them will admit to this, they were all wrong about what was likely to happen. Mm. Um, and in fact, the, the group that was least wrong about what was likely to happen was the ones that actually gave up Trotskyism the most thoroughly, which is the Marcyites, who in America have almost all become just standard definition Marxist Leninist who defend they defend all the 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 Marxist Leninist regimes, including ones that fought each other in wars. Like yeah. it, 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 it's 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 <laughs> like Pol Pot and Vietnam right and now <laughs> and, and, and and the Soviet Union, but not yeah. Khrushchev, but like yeah. uh and Dung and whatever, like totally incoherent defending Stalin of the third period when also Stalin of the 50s, like things that you can't like things that are being held together in a way that indicates what's going on there is, is actually more psychological. Yeah. But maybe, maybe if I could try to put a positive sheen on it, maybe it's productive, you know, maybe it is productive that like all the old sects and all the old divisions have sort of collapsed into a more sort of a more amorphous and uh, inchoate sort of sense that we need to revive something of the Marxist tradition in organizational form, uh, and in, in potentially political form, deal seriously uh, with new questions. I'm just trying to, to be optimistic because it is true that like there, this is much more an aspirational sort of individual psychological tendency than it is anything that we might have seen in the 1980s and 1990s, except for like vague fellow travelers, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think we have to understand this as part of a larger movement of society. Like we've been talking yeah. about how social organisms and social bases are hard to maintain for anything, including bowling leagues. Well, the left has ideological tendencies, um, uh, idealization, lone wolf activism. Um, in a way it's become a lot more like the terrorist cell movements of the early aughts. And it yeah. has even, um, not that people are terrorists. That's not what I'm saying, but like, like there are leaders, but they're influencers. Like the the orgs they try to form are remarkably flaccid and often can't stay afloat very long. And there's um, social media formations in a way that, like, with with some real world activity, something like the Earth Liberation Front in like the the mid mid to late 1990s or something. Right. Or or frankly, I mean, people aren't going to like this comparison, but like BLM was like, yes, they do. Like institutions may be formed out of this, although with BLM no consistent one was formed and it, because of that it was open to all kinds of problems including grifting by people who used it to raise money with no accountability um something that the left does not really want to deal with at all um but and the seeds to the right in a way that's actually just socially discrediting and i think this is something we're gonna have to talk about a little bit later um i guess to the question of what sort of institutions is the left even capable of producing if we're capable of producing um opportunistic grift organizations that are going to use donations to uh create like new um passive ngos or to buy mansions in the hollywood hills or whatever why should any power be imbued in these people whether in the state or outside of the state if this is the these are the forms of institutions capable of being built but I, I want to point out, though, that one of the things about they make the Warrenite right so funny, um, you know, the Warrenite right of the progressive left, right, um, is that what they're attacking the dirtbag left. Where did the dirtbags end up? This is what I think is the irony of the Jacobin years. Mm. All right. Is the Jacobin years did something in the name of anti-fascism and anti-Trumpism, et cetera. Um, made the argument that we cannot form our own power base outside of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is either a botched workers' party, which it's not, by the <laughs> way. Under no definition was it ever a workers' party. Yeah. Uh, or it is a botched opportunist party that had workerist elements, which I think is defensible because of the New Deal. Um, 
and that clarifying that through separation through a dirty break would would uh make us stronger what i realized uh, during the antifa period was that um we really had in some ways become the radical shock troops for the center Mm. And even people who wrote scathing books about, say, uh, Joe Biden, like Bronco Marchevic, um, will then use the arguments made against him about Biden to defend the squad. And it's the exact same structural arguments. And he's he's not using it to fight against radicals like me or you. He's using it to fight against Freddie fucking DeBoer. Mm. Right. And talking about like, how, well, you know, you have to be what the real movement is. The real movement of people who voted for three freshman Congress people who have achieved nothing and whose voting record is actually in some ways to the right of Nancy Pelosi in 1980. Yeah, including uh, like the, the very, very low bar of like, don't stop railroad workers from striking. Right. Don't like if you mean like even though yes there have been progressive reforms for labor in, in, in at the National Labor Relations Board under That's Biden coming from the administrative state that's coming directly out of the uh, the White House right but it's actually not coming anywhere from and it doesn't mean what people think it means either because there's so much more not only is less than what thirty eight percent of public sector workers and less than 20% of, of private sector workers unionized, but also it's not even a majority of those who are covered by the labor relations act. Mm. So they're not actually entitled to much from the labor relations board other than the rules for voting. So it's, it's protecting a minority of a minority of workers. I don't think people realize that, right? Okay. The largest unions in the country since, since D de, deindustrialization are all public sector. None of them, not one public sector union is entitled to N, uh, NCLRLB protections. Not one. Mm. All right. Um, key industries such as medical and logistics, the railroad strike, but also nurses. Mm. They Nurses can have a relationship to National Labor, uh, Labor Relations Board, but they're under different rules. Mm -hmm. The National Labor Relations Board base of industrial labor is largely wiped out by 2008. Yep. 2008 this was when um, all of a sudden they were the companies were paying in cash $300 an hour for tower crane operators to come into the city and uh, cross picket lines. And it worked. You had almost, you know, 100 uh, percent of the jobs under uh, operating engineer contract and where they went, the rest of the industry went because they were the most powerful. And by God, now it's in like 30, 40 percent. It broke the back of the construction industry, the building trades in the city in 2008, 2009. Yeah. And it's just a slow decline since then. And whatever power we have left is uh, granted through federal inf infrastructure programs and um the fact that uh, prevailing wage contracts have to pertain and local and state politics. Besides right. that, it's basically it's it's patronage um, with like the argument that maybe we're more productive, which we are. But doesn't matter if you can pay somebody fifteen dollars an hour. Yeah, this we should we should cut over here. Uh, but this this means that for 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 those of us who uh, maybe it's good to cut to the bones here because this is going to piss a lot of people off. This means that the ultimate result of the Jacobin project mm. and it's tying itself to the Harringtonite DSA was to do more of what Harrington envisioned than Harrington ever did while it was pretending to critique Harringtonism. Mm. What it did was yield Thai activists very disaffected from the, from the Democratic Party to the Democratic Party through two means. One, anti-fascism and two, defense of building up a party within the party to break mm. now during the trump period up until the bernie campaign this was highly effective during the bernie campaign the, the dsa growth stops after the bernie campaign it goes gangbusters and then immediately collapses 
All right. We saw the, the, the numbers are really vague, but they like the DSA right now is in trouble economically. Mm. Um, the only reason that they were economically viable this last quarter was that there was such a staffing shortage. They couldn't staff the people to to replace who they were supposed to fill in to meet all their voted convention norms so that they were actually solvent because they couldn't hire anyone. Mm -hmm. Their wage bill decreased because they couldn't find anybody. Right. Wow. So, and that's why they were not just hemorrhaging their surplus because they lost a lot of dues. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall. <laughs>